I wanted to take a second and just and be intentional about something. Um, it's very easy, no matter how well we do it or how well you listen, there's always um, the possibility that the announcements, no matter how informative or, or insightful they are, it kind of blends into background noise sometime. And I can, I can tell, and I get it. It's the time where I situate myself in the seats, and I get my Bible out, and I'm opening my Bible, and I'm making sure the lid on my coffee is tight, and I'm doing all these things, and I'm like, what did they just say? So I want to make sure that we have this moment um, when we talk about our offerings. We don't, at this church, we never have passed a plate. We've never done that. Part of that is because that's the way our parent church that we launched out of did it. But when we had the opportunity to launch out on our own, I sought the Lord on this. I'm like, do we go back to that? Do we continue with the same thing? And the Lord told me over and over again in no uncertain terms, I am your provider. I will touch the hearts of your people. All you need to do is just be thankful and, and use what we are given in the way that I ask you to use it. That was it. And that's, we have made every, every effort as hard as we can to follow that. We have trusted in the Lord for our provision. When it came time, when we were over at the other building, those of you who were with us and we were looking for a new building, I put out the ask and I said, look, I, I need, the Lord has told me, go to your people and ask and I'll provide a way. And so, and you responded, those of you who are a part of that, responded in such a big way that we are here now. We were able to set aside a, a sizable chunk of money, more than we've ever had in our bank account before, in order to purchase this building. Um, and that was such a move of God and such the faithfulness of you that, that just, just touched my heart in such a way that I couldn't even express how thankful I am to that. But here's what happens. Paul wrote to the Galatians. He said, he said, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. That was at a time where he wrote to that church in Galatia where so many things were happening. It was this crazy movement of the spirit. And yet he had to stop and said, let's, let's, I know you're doing a lot. Let's not grow tired of doing good because there will be a harvest. And what I see now and talking to my pastor friends around the city, um, we all have this dynamic, it seems like, happening right now where I think in our minds, when we reach the top of the mountain, okay, having this building, for example, we're here, we're in this home that we feel God provided and God promised we'd be in, there's a natural letdown. There's a natural like, ah, okay, we're here. And what we have found from a practical standpoint is that many people have either stopped their recurring giving or they've cut it in half significantly, or in half significantly, in half, or even more in some cases, the recurring giving. Some of that is due to the fact that whose 401k and retirement plan didn't take a giant hit in the last, okay? I know, I understand those practical things, but this is why Paul says, let's don't be weary of doing good. Because what we have found is that, guess what? Uh, our bills don't care about the economy going up and down. They stay the same. 
But what there is, is there's more need. And we need to fulfill the mission that God called us to do, which is to go out into this community and to be a light and to do the things that he has called us to do. And that requires faithfulness of God's people. And so the reason I'm standing in front of you is if you're one of those people who has either suspended giving or maybe during that time with the big, with the big ask to get a building, you said, hey, I, I can give one time. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never given to the vision of this church. I want to ask you, this isn't me pleading with you. I want to tell you to search your heart. Let the Holy Spirit search your heart on how you should you should commit your money, your resources, your physical resources, how you should commit those to the mission of this church. Okay? And and I'm not going to tell you, hey, I need everybody right now to write a check. We're not going to do a one time pass the plate. That's not going to happen. I know the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts. Our job and my job as a pastor is to tell you, be bold and seek the Holy Spirit. Seek what he's telling you right now. And then, guess what? The hard part is not seeking. The hard part is being obedient. Because as soon as you hear from the Holy Spirit, you know, you should you should up your giving. Or you should start a recurring giving. Or you should, maybe there's a one-time gift. Whatever it is, it's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Spirit, and He will speak that to you, but then now's the hard part. You have to overcome all the objections that the enemy's going to put in your head and say, yes, I will do that. I will do what the Holy Spirit has told me to do. And when we all do that collectively as a body, one person doesn't have to write a giant check. One person doesn't have to carry the load. We will all carry this load together at this place where God has called us to be a part of this body. And so that's all that I'm asking. We make ways. We have our, our slide here of the ways. So we have the offering box in the back. For those of you who like to do old school, um, you can text to give. Any of our offering platforms or any of our online viewing platforms have a tab that says donate or give or something. You can do through that. Um, recurring giving is always an excellent way to do it. And you can set that up through our website. Just click on the donate and it will walk you through. If you text to give, it'll walk you through how to set up an account. It's all on the screen there. And it's all pretty straightforward. The nuts and bolts of how to do it is straightforward. The hard part, being bold enough to seek the Holy Spirit in prayer and be obedient to what you hear. If we all did that all over this world, if the whole body of Christ did that all the time, can you even imagine the power of the movement of the Spirit would have in this world? And so I'm not asking you to take on the burdens of the world. I'm asking you, if you consider yourself a part of this body, prayerfully consider what He wants you to do and be obedient to that. That's all I'm asking, okay? All right, so let's pray for that. Father God, we we come before you and we openly, we ask you to come into our hearts, testify to our spirit how we should give back to this place, this body, and this church, your church in this place. This church doesn't belong to anybody but you, Lord. So tell us, if you have called us to this place, how do we participate in the mission that you have given this church? Father, touch our hearts, and then, Lord, we just ask that you help us be bold. We know what your Scripture says, what promises say about having faith and doing things in faith. But Scripture also says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So, Lord, for those of us who have never participated in that way, in a financial way, to support a church, Lord, I just pray that you speak to us more clearly now than ever before. Show us how our faithfulness to what you want to do will be multiplied in ways that we can never understand and we'll never know, but we trust you. Lord, we give it all to you. It's all yours. We are just stewards of what you give us. Help us to be faithful to what you want us to do. Father, we praise you, and we thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Guys, I can tell you that of all the things that I have to do as a pastor, that's one of the hardest. I would rather preach hundred messages than stand in front of you and remind you to give. Some cases it feels like arm twisting. I never want it to feel like that. It's between you and the Lord. Search your heart and the Lord will do that. So what I do have is a message to teach today that is one that the Lord put on my heart. And this is one of these sections. We're in a section where, if you can grab your Bible, Mark 15, 22 to 41. <coughs> Excuse me. We're coming in on the home stretch of, of Mark, praying about what comes next. I've got some ideas, um, some things that the Lord's kind of solidifying in my heart. I think it's going to be fantastic. But this section in Mark, there's so much. There's so much in this, in this piece, and I could have broken it into several messages. But what I did instead is I sought the Holy Spirit, and I'm saying, Lord, what do you want me to highlight? Do you want me to break it apart? Do you want me to focus on something? And I feel like he gave me a section to focus on um, that I really want to share with you. And you know what else? Before I do, I keep looking over here at it. I just want to show you a T-shirt that somebody got me today because I absolutely love this. I love this, and I love the other t-shirt, by the way, I wore that t-shirt, but look at this, I love that. I will proudly wear that, not today, because no, no, I'm not going to, but I just want to say thank you, Lisa, that was, that was super cool. Um, okay, now, let's get into this, we're in the Gospel of Mark, if you're new, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're in week number 52 of going through the Gospel. Like, Dang, right, I know. We've been it in a long time, but I hope, my prayer and my hope, and I know this is the way it's where, is God has taught us so many amazing messages through His Word. And I think, to me, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. I know it's been a long time. But I hope that we've all taken away some really cool things from this section. So Mark, Mark is all about the servanthood of Jesus. And this is what I love about it. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and Matthew focuses very much on that kingship and that royal lineage. But Mark is all about, yeah, but this king came to serve. And that is something I think that we can all take away. How do I serve in this kingdom? And the examples that Jesus gives us as he go through this, that's our takeaway, is that we look at how Jesus dealt with the things that came at him. The miracles, absolutely. And through that Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do those miracles, we can do the very same thing. In fact, Jesus says we'll do more than that. But we're looking at this section right here, and Jesus is coming to the end of his time on earth, his earthly time in the flesh going through this. Last week, 
what we talked about is Pilate had handed Jesus over to this Roman cohort to be crucified. And they, they didn't, honestly, they didn't see him as anything special. They didn't see Jesus as anything special. They were toying with him. They were taunting him because uh, he had been called the king, you know, king of the Jews. And they were just playing with him. But they were also crucifying two other criminals at the same time who, to be honest, were probably a little more dangerous, probably commanded a little bit more of their attention. And they're having a little fun at Jesus' expense because he's not fighting back. And so they think they can do that. They lead him out into the streets for everyone to see. Mark 15, 20 says, After they had mocked him, they took the purple cloak off him, put on his own garments, and led him out to crucify him. We learn from other scriptures that the other two criminals were going along, the other two that were going to be crucified at the same time. But in the face of accusations, torture, mockery, everything coming his way, Jesus carries himself with a dignity. That is, it's easy to say it's supernatural, but the dignity that he carries himself with is because, number one, he is confident in his mission. He knows what his mission is, and he also knows who's going to fight his battles. When we look at that and we say, I know who will fight my battles, it's so much easier to approach those battles with dignity. Because if we don't know, we just think it's on our shoulders, then we will fight and kick and scream and poke and do anything that we can to fight those battles. That's not very dignified usually. But if we know who's going to fight our battles for us, it's easier to have dignity. And that's what we see Jesus in uh, walking out right there. So in this section, again, Mark 15, 22 to 41, there are so many incredible lessons that we can learn from this section. I urge you to go back and read it and study it and look for those things that the Holy Spirit pulls out for you. But here's what he brought to me. So let's get into the scripture and it'll all become clear as we go through here. Mark 15, 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And that's literal. I love when Mark does this, which is translated, and he translates for you, probably because it was written in Aramaic to begin with, and a lot of people maybe didn't understand that. So he just does the favor for you and translates it. Golgotha literally means skull. It also, in some versions, you'll see it translated as Calvary. Anybody ever heard it called Calvary? Jesus was crucified on Calvary. It means the same thing. Calvary is Latin from the word calva, which means either skull or bald head. I'm guessing it probably means skull in this context, but it could mean bald head. But this is what it's talking about. In fact, I have a a map here that I want to show you. This is the map of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, it says. And it might be it's slightly smallish, so bear with me if it's hard to see. Um, right down here, this is the area all inside the walls of Jerusalem. Um, right down here is the high priest. This is Caiaphas's residence. So they take Jesus from Caiaphas's residence up here to the Praetorium, which is which is part of Herod's bigger fortress and Herod's palace. Right. So this is where he is. And then they leave there. And they walk through, some maps have the, the path, the Via Dolorosa, where Jesus walked through. But they come out of one of these gates. Now, there's two places where 
historically it is. It's either over here, Golgotha, or it's up here, Gordon's Calvary. I'll talk to you more about that in just a moment. But they're leaving that place, and they're heading out. This is where we are in space and time. Now, Golgotha is a real place. There are a couple different people who are a couple different theories. Some think that is part of the, uh, it's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located, which is inside the walls uh, of Jerusalem. Some say it's at this other location. Now here, um, sh- show me the, um, the image, the black and white image of Golgotha. Okay, this is a little bit older, black and white. If you look inside the circle there, how it kind of looks like a skull. If you use your imagination, it could look like a skull. You got some camels down below. This is obviously fairly old. Back in the 1800s, I think that's when that is dated. Now, here's a, it's a painting of what it would have looked like in the time of Jesus. You see the crosses down here. You can see a little bit more clearly up there what the skull looks like. That is a location that's called, uh, it's otherwise called Gordon's Calvary, which is outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the other one, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which some people think is the location, would have been outside the walls of the old city, the inside the walls of the, of the more modern city. That's why there's some debate on which location it is. This is the location that I believe that it is. It's outside of one of the gates. Um, I just show you that because, again, the, the, the visual way that some people learn this is what I picture when I picture Golgotha uh, and Calvary, that it looks like that. I was going to show you a picture of what it looked like today, but it's actually a bus park. It's very, um, it's not very holy looking. They have a fence around there and they park city buses there. Um, Mark 15, 23, and they tried to give him wine. So remember, they brought him to a place, Golgotha, which is named the place of his skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Okay, he'd already told them that he wasn't going to drink again, drink of the fruit of the vine until he was with them in heaven. He had already said that. But here's something I want to point out to you. This drink, um, it says they. It doesn't really say who they is that offered him the wine. It certainly wasn't the Roman soldiers. They had no need or no reason to want to give Jesus any kind of comfort. This was actually most likely... Um, a group of Jewish women, possibly Mary Magdalene, and, and we don't know, but they would have probably offered the wine. And the reason they were allowed to do that is because it's based on Proverbs, the idea of giving the condemned wine. Proverbs 31.6 says, Give intoxicating drink to one who's perishing and wine to one whose life is bitter. So they were actually allowed, this, this group of Jewish women allowed to give wine sometimes to the condemned to help dull the pain a little bit and comfort them a little bit. Also in Proverbs, though, that Proverbs 31.6, also in Proverbs, the two verses right before it. Now, Proverbs 31 um, is probably written, written by King Lemuel's mother. Okay, We don't know exactly for sure, but we do know this section right here was written by her. And she's trying to tell her son, King Lemuel, how to deal with things, how to deal with wine, how to deal, just basically 
practical ways. And verses 4 and 5 of Proverbs 31, again, this is from King Lemuel's mother to him, said, it is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire intoxicating drink. Otherwise, they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the needy. Very wise advice that she's giving to her son, but also very appropriate to Jesus when he refuses that drink. Jesus wanted to be dignified. He wanted to be fully aware of what he was about to do on the cross. He didn't want anything to dull that sensation. Mark 15, 24 says, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man would take. That in itself, that part about casting lots, was prophesied all the way back in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. All these centuries-old prophecies coming true in the Acts right here. Now, I guarantee the Roman soldiers who divided up his clothes and cast lots for them were not thinking, let's fulfill prophecy by doing this. And yet it was prophesied and it came true just exactly like that. By the way, a note means the garments are all of his personal effects. In that translation, it really means everything that he had with him, his bags, his sash, his his tunic, everything like that. John 19 Uh, Verses 23 and 24 put a little bit more clarity on what they're talking about here. Let me read it for you. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier and the tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it. Decide whose it shall be. Then it says, this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves, cast lots for my clothing. That's what we just read in Psalm 22. Priestly tunics were different. This is what Jesus was wearing. A typical tunic would be probably two pieces or maybe put together kind of a patchwork of all kinds of things. Priestly tunics, which would have been valuable enough. Can you imagine Roman guards having everything they need, looking at Jesus, who is basically looks like a, a, a beggar almost in front of them. The, the tunic would have had blood on it from all the things that they had done to him. Um, it wouldn't have looked off the rack, right? It, it, it would have been pretty beat up. And yet, there was something valuable enough about it. To where they divided up his bag, his sash, his sandals. They divided all that stuff amongst themselves. But the tunic was special. It was woven from one piece, which was very much something that only a priestly garment would be. It was unusual, and it was special. And that's why they wanted to take the time to actually divide, uh, to cast lots and divide that up so that they didn't tear it up. Mark 15, 25. Now it was the third hour when they crucified him. By the way, the Hebrew time system is divided. Uh, they take night and day, and they divide it into equal parts. And so when they're talking about the third hour, what they're really talking about is about 9 a.m. Okay, it's about 9 a.m. Mark 15, 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now again, John's gospel adds a little detail. I'll read it for you. John 19, 19 to 22 says, now Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It's where the condemned's charge would go on the cross. Pilate himself did this. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. 
Verse 20, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, rather write that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Look, I've got an image here. There's some debate. Now, this is, this is made of wood. Um, the wording is what it would have been. Some people say it was carved in, in rock. There's a place in Turkey, I believe, that claims to have the actual plaque there. But it's, it's rock and it's carved in. Jesus wasn't special enough to rate that kind of attention. Okay? So it probably would have just been a chunk of wood and they would have, have just written on it. The top is in Hebrew. The middle is in Greek. And the bottom is in Latin. So leave that up there for just a second. <clears throat> you look at this, it's in three languages. It's in, the common, it's in the common dialect, it's in the official dialect, um, and it's in the national dialect. So the top is the national, that's the Hebrew, and the middle would have been the common dialect. Most people spoke Greek as well. And then the bottom is the official I want you to think about this. Have you ever seen, um, I was going to talk about it later, but sometimes the sign that you'll see when they illustrate it in plays and things will just say I-N-R-I, Inri. Have you ever seen that? If you look at the bottom, Jesus, Nazareth, Rex, Eudorium, that's, that's I-N-R-I, and it's a, it's a, uh, abbreviation. So sometimes you'll see it like that, and it's not actually what was on there, but it's an abbreviation. So I want you to look at the significance. You can go ahead and pull that down. The significance of this next part in Scripture that's coming up because this is where I think the Holy Spirit showed me something that he wanted me to kind of camp out on. Mark 15, 27. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, we've heard that story. We've seen the pictures. Every illustration of Calvary or of Golgotha shows the three crosses. And I think that's more significant sometimes than we think about. It was probably, or possibly, two of Barabbas' co-conspirators who were up there with Jesus. Okay, remember Barabbas was released. He was an insurgent. He was a robber. He was a murderer. He was a bad guy, but he got released. These are probably two of his co-conspirators, if you will, um, the reason why I think this is some translations use the word there were robbers or criminals up there, but though, being a robber wasn't a capital offense. You wouldn't be crucified for that. It had to be a much more serious offense for them to be crucified along with Jesus. But you ever think about why they always show Jesus in the middle and the two robbers on either side? You ever think of every illustration you've ever seen is like that, Right? But remember, to us, Jesus is, of course, very, very special and very significant. To them, not so much. They didn't care. Jesus was just another one. Why was Jesus in the middle? All four Gospels record the fact that Jesus was in the middle, and there was one on his right and one on the left. Have you ever thought about that? St. Augustine, by the way, writing you know, 150 years later, referred to them as the quick and the dead. 
You ever heard of the movie called The Quick and the Dead, or you've heard different things, The Quick and the Dead? It's always, it sounds so cool. It sounds like a gunfighter, and that's, it's always Westerns where they do that, right? It has nothing to do with speed or how fast you are in the draw. It means alive, the alive and the dead. And, <coughs> excuse me, that's also a line from Hamlet. And a lot of people think that's where that came from, but it's actually all the way back, 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So when that phrase first came out, when Timothy, when it was spoken in 2 Timothy, it meant judgment. It was a reference to judgment, being judged. So keep that in your mind when we look at the right and the left. The idea of the right and the left, that goes all the way back to Genesis as far as on the right side being the hand of blessing. The left side often is the hand of cursing. This has nothing to do with whether you're right-handed or left-handed, by the way. But the idea of the right side and the left side goes all the way back. It's Jacob blessing his sons, and it has become symbolic of judgment. So when we look at one criminal being on the right, one criminal being on the left, it's significant. It's not accidental that it's in there. Matthew 25, 31, 33 says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. More on that shortly. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, um, who has a Bible where verse 28 is not there? Okay. Verse 28 is not in a lot of translations. And here's the reason why it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of Mark. The earliest copies of Mark, which are some of the most reliable, didn't have verse 28 in there. So if your Bible has verse 28 in there and you're looking at, at Mark's gospel, it's probably in parentheses or some kind of brackets. All that means is that it was added later. Now, it wasn't necessarily made up, okay, because we see in Luke, Luke 22 has that exact quote where it talks about that. So, and it says, verse 28, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Okay, that's in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. So it wasn't totally made up, but the early manuscripts don't have it in Mark. Again, I point this out so that you don't look at these questions and go, I don't know what's going on. I want you to understand why some things are the way they are. Isaiah 52, 12 says, Therefore, and again, this is prophecy from hundreds of years before, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. That's where that idea of being numbered with transgressors, it's prophecy that's being quoted right there. So, moving on from that, Jesus' enemies now, they gather to taunt him. Okay, He's already being crucified, but they want to make a point. This guy who said he was king of the Jews, who, who claimed to be the son of God, who all these things, look, he's just as weak as anybody else. So they don't want to risk anybody thinking, oh, maybe he is son of God. They want to get together and drive home their point that he's nothing special. Mark 15, 29, 30, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. 
shaking their head, heads and saying, Ha! You are who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. He's already on the cross being crucified. And they're going by. Now, these passers-by, who were they? You ever think about that? Who were these passers-by? It's nine in the morning. It's early. Who heard him say, when they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, who even knew that he said that? First of all, he didn't say that. It was accused of him, right? If we go all the way back to earlier in the morning, which was three in the morning when all these trials started, it was a false charge that was made against Jesus in front of Caiaphas. So it was a false charge to begin with. He never did say that. But the only people who would have even known that that was something that was spoken would have been those, the high priests, the elders who were there with Caiaphas in the morning. So when it says those passing by, these weren't citizens. These weren't Roman soldiers. These were the high priest, the elders, the chief priest. They were all trying to drive home their point that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Mark 15, 31, 32. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Listen to this part. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Think about that. On either side, they're also cruci- they're, they're being crucified also, but they're also mocking Jesus, insulting him, mocking him, showing no dignity whatsoever as opposed to Jesus being very dignified right in the middle. Let's look a little bit more closely at that chunk. Those who were crucified with him were insulting him. Makes it seem like both of the criminals were insulting him. Anybody ever just kind of assumed that's how it worked? They're both taunting Jesus. They're both criminals after all. Caught, convicted, sentenced criminals. I always just assumed it was both of them. Listen to what Luke says. Luke 23, 39 to 42. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now remember, Luke took his gospel from eyewitness testimony. He was very careful to get down what was said and who said it and when they said it. One criminal was hurling abuse at Jesus, and the other one believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Get this, though. The response, verse 43 of Luke 23, says what Jesus said back to him. Jesus said to him, anybody know what he said? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What did the criminal ask for? What did he ask for? Remember me. When you come into your kingdom that you so clearly deserve, you are the Christ. I believe that. And when you get there, just remember me. That's all he wanted. And what did Jesus give him? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus gave him so much more than he even knew that he could ask for. 
and Jesus gave it to this man. It's about noon now. Jesus has been on the cross for about three hours. Mark 15, 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours. Three hour eclipse. Anybody who thinks, oh, it was just an eclipse that just happened at that random time. Three hour darkness, that's not an eclipse. Multiple prophecies throughout Scripture foretold this happening. Isaiah 5.10, for example, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. There's many, many, many more that the whole land was cast into darkness for three full hours. This is documented, by the way, in all the three synoptic Gospels, Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all document what's happening. But even more importantly for those who are skeptical, anybody here skeptical sometimes? There's outside sources. At least three secular historians, okay, meaning non-Christian historians, document this. Uh, one specifically, his name is Flajon. He's a Greek historian. And about in the year about 137 A.D., he wrote an extensive history of this time, an extensive history. And he wrote this. Remember, he's Greek. So his time frame all goes around the Olympiads. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which translates to the year 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. He's saying that there's a huge, vast area that this earthquake was taking over. And in the land as he knew it, it was completely dark for three hours. These, I love these outside. Terry, where are you at? Uh, the apologetics class that Terry, Terry does documents these sorts of things and, and many, many more talking about how from secular, scientific, documentable resources, these things that we go, oh, man, that's a fantastic story, they really happened. I love, I love that aspect of things. Now, in agony for about six hours now, okay, Jesus has been on the cross for about six hours, and he cries out. Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And again, thank you, Mark, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words themselves and that idea is also quoting some Old Testament scripture. Psalm 22, 1, 2. This is David saying this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer him by night, but I have no rest. That's David crying out. And this is what Jesus is quoting from the cross. But the idea goes all the way back to Moses. We read in Deuteronomy 31.6, the Lord says to Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread of them. For the Lord your God is the one who's going with you. He will not desert you or abandon you. But just a few verses later, it talks about those who turn to sin and idolatry. Again, Deuteronomy 31.18 but I will assuredly hide my face on that day because of all the evil that they will have done. They will have turned away to other gods. This is the moment when darkness overcomes the land. This is the moment when Jesus had taken the weight of the sins of the world onto himself. And it's at that moment 
where he was carrying the weight of the sins that the Father God had to turn his face from witnessing that evil. He took the pain, the loss, the separation from God, he took that all onto his own shoulders. Mark 15, 35, 36, and when some of the bystanders heard him, they began saying, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. That idea of him calling for Elijah, it's a misunderstanding. He's, he's crying out in Aramaic, and they probably misunderstood what he was saying. And they took that, <coughs> excuse me, they mistook what he was saying, that he was calling out for Elijah. And But they continue with that mistake. John says they used a hyssop branch to reach up and give Jesus the wine. Probably at this point, literally to prolong Jesus' suffering. They didn't want him dying too soon because they want to see if Elijah's going to come back. Let's keep him alive a little bit longer and see if Elijah will, will actually come back. Very next verse, though, verse 37. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. Luke expands a little bit on that. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he died. That itself is a quote from Psalm 31, 5. Now, at that moment, at that moment, something very significant happens. Verse 38 of Mark 15, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's a big thing. The veil of the temple, the veil of the temple they're talking about there is, is the temple, right, that's there in Jerusalem. But at that moment, you know how big that veil was? 60 feet wide, or 60 feet tall, that is, 30 feet wide, and about four inches or so thick. This isn't something that like, oh, somebody tripped on it and tore the veil. This is significant. The high priest was probably there. A group of Levites were probably there, and they witnessed it happening. Now let me show you. This is an image of the tabernacle. Now this is the tabernacle that traveled around with the Hebrews. This is the one that they built. But the idea of the veil and the construction is very, very similar you had the outer veil, which is that purple part, and then the inner that separated the outer court of the temple from the inner, the Holy of Holies. Okay, So that big, giant, tall purple veil is what we're talking about. And inside, what you can see, um, and just to make sure it's clear, I'm sorry, it's not quite as clear, but this area right here, that's the Ark of the Covenant. That should have been there. But in fact, at this point, it's just an altar. <clears throat> so when that happened, that moment where that was torn, the price was paid once and for all. No more separation from God. No more, in fact, no more even need for the temple because God's spirit was now, the temple was now inside each one who believed in Jesus. This right here now became just a building. Just an empty building. No more separation from God. The Levite priest, by the way, sewed that temple veil, sold it back together, and for about another 40 years it existed until it was finally, the whole temple was destroyed by Rome. For 40 years they kept alive this empty building that had no more real significance 
because that's what their religion told them to do. Now, Mark 15, 39, let's continue on this. I'm getting to the point. Stay with me. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw that he died in this way, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That is an impactful statement. When I think about this, think about that centurion. Think about if you are, put yourself in that centurion. The centurion would have been a part of probably a group of four Roman soldiers who were charged with, okay, you actually carry out the crucifixion. Wouldn't have been the whole cohort of 500 there at this point. Wasn't needed for this. Think about if you're that centurion. How many crucifixions had you witnessed at this point? Hundreds, dozens, maybe thousands. It was very, very common. How often do you think the centurion saw one, saw somebody die from crucifixion and say, that might be the Son of God? Never. But what happened when they were being crucified? Most likely, you're screaming, you're yelling, you're spitting, you're crawling, you're screaming out in pain, you're doing all these things, just like any one of us would do in that situation. There was something about the way Jesus did this that made that centurion say, that man is different. What's happening here is different. And there's a lot of things. First of all, crying out the way Jesus did Most people who died of crucifixion didn't die of blood loss or anything. They died of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. You're hanging there for so long that you can't breathe. When you're at the point where you're going to breathe your last and die, you don't have power in your lungs to cry out. And Jesus did. Jesus cried out. Very unusual. Then you couple that with this this dignity, this, this meekness that Jesus exhibited on the cross. He wasn't crying, screaming, doing any of those things. In fact, what was he doing? He was showing kindness for them on the cross. He was showing kindness to the one who believed in him. He was showing kindness to people down below. Some of it could have been the three-hour eclipse that had just happened or the earthquake that just happened. But for whatever reason, this centurion knew that something was different. Could have also been this. Pastor Gabe does this the series every now and then, the wait what, on things that seem unusual. Let me share one of these things that could have been a tip-off to the centurion that something different was happening. This is from Matthew 27, 52 and 53. I urge you to just study this on your own. It says, also the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, so you've got a three-hour eclipse. You've got an earthquake. You've got all these natural things going on. You've got Jesus being able to speak at all from there. You see him being kind. You see him forgiving people. You see him showing so much mercy while he himself is being crucified. And then, to top it all off, you've got zombies being raised from the dead and just wandering around the streets of Jerusalem. We don't talk about that very much because that's... A little weird, right? But it happened. And there is a teaching that goes along with that, but we're not going to do that today. All of these things, I know, uh, all of these things, how long you got? I, I got? I got all day. Um, all of these things put together, though, to make that centurion know that something's different. There are some writings out there. Um, Nicodemus, for one. Nicodemus uh, put some writings together later on, 
and he actually names who the criminals were, and he names who that centurion is. They're apocryphal writings, which means we don't know exactly the authenticity. They're certainly not scripture. Um, Caleb, for the one who I know is writing it down, it's called the Gospel of Nicodemus. Look it up. But there are many, many of those other apocryphal writings that kind of help us fill in some blanks. We can't take them as scripture, but it paints a little bit of a story. Anyway, Mark 15, 40, 41. There were many, there were also some women who were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and serve him. So he's, they're saying that these are disciples of Jesus. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We'll talk more about them next week. So let's put a cap on this and let's figure out where am I at in time? Oh, 40 minutes. I got at least another hour. <laughs> Sorry. All right. As I said earlier, there's so much that we can take away from this. Any one of these things that are happening could be an entire series, much less its own standalone teaching. But here's what the Lord showed me very, very clearly. The cross of Jesus, that symbol, the cross of Jesus, is a type and a shadow of both the judgment seat and the mercy seat. Let me tell you, let me tell you why that is. The mercy seat. Anybody know what the mercy seat was? The mercy seat literally was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 17 says this, where they're giving them directions on how to build this, where the Lord is. And it says, and you shall make an atoning cover, is what they call it, an atoning cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. That word atoning, the atoning cover. In Hebrew, it's kaporeth. And the definition is a, a propitiatory, which is a word we don't use very often. But what it means is it's intended to reconcile or appease. Okay? So that, that the top of the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be a cover that is a, a, a seat that is intended to reconcile or appease. Now, here's a, here's a painting. It's just a, a painting of what this might have looked like. These are two of the priests. They're, they're in the tabernacle just traveling around. And they are before that. And you can see the, the Ark of the Covenant with the poles. It's all written out in Scripture on how this is all supposed to be built. But up on top where you have the two cherubim who are sitting there with their wings touching each other, that top part is what's called the mercy seat. And what would happen is that the high priest would go in there and he would enter um, He would enter that place and take the blood of the sacrifice literally and sprinkle it on top of that seat, offering atonement for the sins of his people. That's where that came from. Now, that's the mercy seat. Anybody know where the judgment seat is going to be? I gave it away a little bit. Where is it going to be? It's in heaven. The judgment seat will be in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may... Re I said I wasn't going to be that pastor who like shook his finger at people and here I am, I'm doing it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds 
done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Anybody ever heard of the Bema seat? Anybody ever heard that phrase thrown around and gone like, I don't know what that is. That phrase right here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment seats translate in the Greek as the word Bema, B-E-M-A, Bema. And its definition is a platform before which someone would kneel to receive judgment. It's a place where both judgment and reward is handed out. So what we see here is Jesus Christ taking onto his flesh the judgment and the penalties that we deserve on the cross. That's what he did. He took that onto his flesh so that we could, in that day, stand in front of the Bema seat and be found innocent. Church, I should get an amen or a hallelujah or something. Because we can stand. Scripture says we must all appear before that judgment seat. We must all appear before it. And through what Jesus did, you're not going to see, you're not going to see your sins read back to you. Hmm. At the same time from the cross, I talk about it being a type and a shadow. At the same time on the cross, Jesus offered both judgment and mercy for those who deserve to be in his place. Think about the mercy that Jesus offered in the midst of his trials. Luke twenty-two thirty-four. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Remember that? We've all heard that. That's Jesus in the midst of his trial saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Offering mercy to the very people who are persecuting him. To the condemned criminal sharing a a place on Calvary. Again from Luke. And he was saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. That's not mercy. And he didn't declare his agreement with every teaching and Lord and Savior. And he didn't get down and pray. He He was hanging there. And he just said, you are the Son of God. And he knew it in his heart, and Jesus rewarded him. In the midst of Peter, in the midst of Jesus' trial, remember what I taught last, a couple weeks ago, he looks down and he offers mercy to Peter, who's down below. In the midst of being, being beat up and prosecuted, persecuted, all those things, he looks down at Peter, sees his failure, and forgives it all at the same time. To the disciple John and his mother Mary, where while he's in John 19, you can read it on your own, where Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at John and at Mary and says, this is your son, this is your mother. He's in the midst of being crucified and he's thinking about them, giving them mercy. That's what Jesus did. Even Pilate. Anybody know how Jesus showed mercy to Pilate? You catch this? It's, it's very small. John 19, 11, Jesus answered him. This is when he's saying, you have authority, or Pilate saying, I have authority over you. Jesus says, you'd, only, you'd have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. But then he adds this line, for this reason, the one who handed me over to you has greater sin. He's not forgiving Pilate. He's saying, look, what you, what you did, you were just being used. The one who gave me to your custody That one's got greater sin. Jesus shows so much mercy. So we shouldn't look at the judgment seat of Christ, that that 
that Bema seat, when we get there, we shouldn't look at it as God judging our sins, but rather rewarding us for the way that we lived our lives. Because Jesus atoned for your sins. And because he did that, when we get there, we've all, we've all seen the pictures standing in front of the pearly gates and the scroll is unfolded and they will read off all the judgments against you. Here's the way, here's the way the Lord in prayer, I'm like, what is that? And here's what I felt. When they read those things, when they read your deeds and the things that you have done, Scripture says that's what they're going to do. They're going to relive your life. But it's not going to be read to you as accusations, but as pardons that you have received. Who wants to think about it like that? You're standing in front of the judgment seat and saying, you did this and you were pardoned. You did this and you were pardoned. You did this and you were pardoned. And so we don't find you guilty of those things at all because of what Jesus Christ did. In our society, I don't know if anybody else has, but... um, I've had some experience where when a prisoner is released, okay, you're in prison, not you, this theoretical person, they're in prison and they're released. Okay, their debt to society paid, they're out. They give you, depending on the state, they will either give you somewhere between $200 and $0. And they'll say, okay, you need to somehow find, and they just let you go on the front steps of the prison. We've all seen the pictures, the gates open, and you just walk out. You will have anywhere from nothing to at most $200. California gives it to you in a gift card. It's probably not Amazon, it's probably, but, but they give you that, and they say, good luck. Good luck with the rest of your life. You probably, along with that, comes someplace you have to be. You have to be at the halfway house or you have to be uh, at the parole officer's hearing. And they don't care how you get there. And they don't care what goes on. They don't care where you're going to live or what you're going to eat or what you're going to do. It's bye-bye. That's what our society does to the condemned when their debt is paid and they're returned to society. No job, no car, little in the way of prospects. Is there any wonder that recidivism is so incredibly high? contrast that when you ask for forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Here's what you receive. Bear with me. It's going to be fast. Listen to this. You receive the newness of life. Romans 6 promises that. Eternal life. John 3.16. The crown of glory. 1 Peter 5. Crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4. The crown of life. James 1.12. The crown of victory, 1 Corinthians 9. A glorious new body from Philippians 3. You receive the Holy Spirit from Acts 2. You receive peace, John 14. Strength, Isaiah 40. Inheritance, Titus 3. Hope, Romans 15. Healing, 1 Peter 2. Freedom, Galatians 5. And I could go on and on and on about the things that you receive when you are set free. In Jesus' name. Would you rather have a $200 gift card and good luck with your life? Because that's what the condemned in this world get. The condemned in Jesus receive these. In the time of trial, like the examples that we just read about, draw near to Jesus.
Everything that we see in Scripture, those people who receive pardons, those people who receive these kind of blessings, they're drawing near to Jesus. Okay, They're finding a way. I will get through the crowd and I'll just touch the hem of his garment. I will climb a tree so that I can call out to him. I'll travel so that I can be in his presence. Anything. They're drawing near to Jesus. Not with fear, but with confidence. And when you do that, the mercy of Jesus will set you free. One last scripture and we'll go into communion. Hebrews 4, 14, 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you just so in awe of your mercy. Your mercy that never ends. Your mercy that is not dependent on us doing the right thing at the right time. Your mercy is dependent on what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. And all we need to do is accept it and say yes. Father, we are not worthy of the forgiveness and the mercy that you show us, but you do it anyway because it's not anything that we've done. So Lord, we thank you that we can stand. On that day, we can have the assurance that we will be able to stand before the throne We'll be able to stand before that judgment seat. And rather than to hear the crimes against us, what we will hear is the many ways you have forgiven us. Father, I thank you for that assurance. I thank you that I am not set free just to figure out life, but the reward of the Holy Spirit in us will be our guide to live a life that is honoring to what you have done for us a life that takes what you have given us and puts it to good use in ways that we could never understand. We thank you that you're a part of who we are. We are a part of your story, and that story is being written every day, and it's a story of mercy, and it's a story of forgiveness. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are going to move into communion right now. And um, we'll have two stations. We'll have one over here where Gabe and I will be and one over here where I completely forgot to have someone set aside to do that. Who would like to serve communion for us over at this station today? Kate and Kayla. <laughs> Come on up and serve communion. It's just like in third grade where the teacher asks for a question and the heads that go down, like, that's you. I'm going to ask Kate and Kayla to come over here and serve communion over here. We have wine and bread over at these stations. And over at the self-serve over there, we've got juice if you don't want to go uh, with the wine and you want to serve yourself over there. Let's do it, though. Let's do it with a conscious mind saying, by taking this communion, I am remembering who Jesus is. I'm remembering what he did. But more than that, I'm saying, yes, what you have done is not in vain. 
the sacrifice that you gave on the cross for me, I will not let it go to waste. I will live my life as someone who has been condemned and yet freed. So let's move about now and do that as the worship team plays on. If you need to stay there and just pray for a little bit, you can do that. But let's go down the middle and then to each station for communion to try and be somewhat orderly if we can. Let's praise God for who he is. Amen? Thank you, guys.